This is Billy Bates, and thank you for tuning into my podcast. Any resemblance between events, places, and persons, living or dead, in this story is purely coincidental and a figment of your imagination. Like my mama said, you know better than to make up stuff like that. Country come to town. Although I must have been too small to remember it, Mama said I used to go out to the farthest end of the backyard and shake the chain-link fence to be let out and cry at the top of my lungs. As soon as I realized I was living in Greensboro, North Carolina when I was a very little boy, I began plotting my exit. I always wanted to move to the big city and get away from what I considered an uninteresting provincial southern town. I don't think it was until I saw Marlo Thomas running through the streets of New York City and that girl that I made up my mind that one day, some way, and somehow, I would live and work there. I wasn't sure until much later what my strategy would be, as I knew my mother and father would never support such a drastic move on my part. So I parked that dream in the back of my mind and bided my time until I knew the time would be right for me to make that move. The right time came when I finished college. I had lived at home and studied piano at the School of Music at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. My parents had made a deal with me when I was finishing high school. I could go away to school, but I couldn't have a car. And if I lived at home and attended college, I could have a car, but I had to pay for it. To this day, I'm still not sure what kind of a deal that was. I figured I would outsmart my parents at the end of my freshman year, and I would move out and take my car with me. Those plans got thwarted when my father suddenly died at the end of my freshman year, and, being the oldest child in the family, Mama needed me to stay at home to help out while I attended school. Finally, graduation arrived, and the stars aligned themselves in my favor. I was fortunate in that my best friend from high school days, Bobby Needle, had moved to New York and had an apartment on the Upper West Side in the same building the actress Inger Stevens had lived in and committed suicide. He was insistent that I move to New York City and stay with him until I could get a job and my own place to live, and I quickly accepted this offer. One afternoon after my mother came in from her job at the local jewelry store where she worked in retail sales, I asked her to sit down at the kitchen table and that I had something I wanted to talk to her about. She immediately got a very pinched look on her face and her eyes narrowed as she was certain something was up. By this time in my life, she knew I could spring a huge surprise on her and derail her day as easily as I could snap my fingers. Mama, I have made a decision to move to New York City and get a job there and experience living there. With a horrified look on her face, she pounced. Have you absolutely lost your mind? What do you think you're going to do there? Where are you going to live? If you read the papers, you see that people are killed there every day just walking down the street. And why would you want to live around a bunch of smart aleck Yankees? Well, Bobby has said I can live with him until I find my own place and get a job. He's excited for me, and I wish you would be too. I have to take the opportunity to do something like this while I'm young. Well, I'll tell you one thing, and don't you forget it, Buster. If you make this crazy move and get up there and get into trouble, don't you dare call here. I can assure you, Mama, that this is the last place I would call. And Billy, another thing, if you're expecting me to give you money to finance this insanity, you've got another thought coming. I'm not asking you for a dime. I have plenty of money saved to live on until I go to work. Well, I just bet you do, little man. Do you know what it costs to live in a place like that? You'll go through that and be on the streets before you know it. And I want to know what kind of job you think you're going to get when you get there. 
Don't you worry about me. I'll manage just fine. So not another word was said between us about the move. I quietly made my plans and started packing my things. One of the driving factors for me getting to New York was the fact that at the end of my senior year in college, I had finally come out as a closet as a gay man. During spring break of my last year in college, a small group of us made it to New York City, and as I was sitting in the Broadway theater watching the production of a chorus line, as the company on stage belted out one singular sensation, the stars aligned, and I set my sights on New York City. That fateful Sunday in January finally arrived. There had been a record snowfall in New York the day before, so I knew I was in for an experience. I had to admit to myself, I was absolutely terrified about the move. But the only thing I was more terrified about was not making the move and being stuck in Greensboro. I remember crying all the way up there on the plane, wondering what in the heck I was going to do once I got there. I had also packed everything except the kitchen sink for my move, this being long before the days I learned to travel lightly. Along with a half dozen suitcases containing every article of clothing I owned, I had a large trunk in which I brought my dishes, silverware, glassware, stereo, albums, and a television, among other things. I had the trunk sent on ahead to Delta Cargo at LaGuardia Airport, and I had to take a bus to the cargo area to retrieve the trunk. Naive fool that I was, I walked up to the Delta employee at the baggage claim and asked him if he would watch my luggage if I left it sitting in the corner while I went to retrieve the trunk. God looks after children and fools, because every piece of it was still there when I got back. The cab ride into Manhattan was an experience for me. I remember looking out the cab window and seeing the level of snow, even with the bottom of the car window. No wonder I made it to Bobby's place on 94th Street, and boy, was I happy to see a familiar face. I was so fearful, and everything was so strange to me that I wouldn't go anywhere for the first two weeks by myself. Finally, with my surroundings becoming more and more familiar to me, I ventured out on my own. A few days after that, I felt confident enough to start looking for a job. Bobby and everyone else there told me the best way to make lots of money fast was to get a good job waiting tables. I had no idea what possibilities lay ahead for me, so I thought that was probably the best thing. Although I had a good amount of money saved, I figured I should do it. I never had worked a single day in a restaurant, and I was certain that if I didn't lie and say I'd experienced it, I would never get hired. Several people tipped me off that I should try to find something on the Upper East Side, where the restaurants would generally be more upscale and the clientele more generous with their tips. My first day out, I struck pay dirt. It was only the second restaurant I had walked into to inquire about a waiting job. The name of the restaurant was Harper, located between 73rd and 74th Streets on 3rd Avenue. The owner was an outspoken Italian gay man named Ken who only spoke in one tone, shouting. Have you waited tables before? He hammered at me while leering at me about five inches from my face. I lied through my teeth and said, well, yes, I have. I'm a good waiter. He suddenly stepped back and a devilish smile came over him. You talk funny. Why do you talk like that? You're not from here, are you? No, sir. I'm from North Carolina, but I can guarantee you I'll be as good as a waiter in any place. Are you gay? I only hire good-looking gay boys in this restaurant. I was shocked that he couldn't read through that one. Yes, gay as you could ever hope for. Okay, well, we'll give you a go. Show up this Saturday and work brunch. Be here at 9.30 a.m. 
I suppose that meant he thought I was good looking enough to be an employee there, so I, it was a little pick-me-up for the day. On Saturday, I showed up on time and ready to work. I became somewhat of a novelty there as all the other waiters were from New York City or surrounding areas. I was quick to pick on the fact that they surmised I was a southern bumpkin, so I had a lot of fun with it. One day after the restaurant had closed for the night and we were cleaning up, one of the other's waiters asked me what kind of work my parents did. Without missing a beat, I proceeded. Oh, we own a large grit plantation in North Carolina, I said in my thickest southern accent, and my family makes a fortune every year when the grits are harvested. Everyone in the place stopped and looked at me like I had just crash landed from another planet. Someone else spoke up. What do the grits look like before they are harvested? Do they grow on plants? Oh, Lord have mercy, no. They grow in big old white balls up in the grit trees. Every year late in the summer, my daddy hires help to pick them. He lets me and my brother and sister help out too. Lawsy, I sure will miss the harvest this year. I spun out just as a matter of fact as I continued to clean my stations. I guess they all felt kind of sorry for me as they thought I was so ignorant. And it turned off because I turned out to be the worst waiter in the restaurant. That was the very first brunch was a disaster and it started out with a bang. The first table I had to wait on had three young women. They were seated at my table. Kent leaned over and whispered in my ear, watch these three, they can be tough to please. From the get-go, they were as rude and condescending as they could be. I took their order for three Bloody Marys and returned with them to the table. I pretended that I had been carrying stemmed drink glasses like these for years, and as I set them down on the table, the bases of all three glasses caught the back of the empty chair on the table and neatly emptied into one of their purses. Oh my God, my new Gucci bag. This is outrageous. Where's the manager? I'm not paying for the drinks, and the restaurant is paying for my bag. Thus my illustrious career as a New York waiter was born. I think on some levels I must have provided comic relief for the other waiters, and even the owner at times. That could be one of the reasons why they kept me on. I do know that I made some of the best money there I'd ever made in my life. These were the days when waiters could still work off the books and be paid in cash. We had to bust our own tables, so the waiters shared their tips exclusively also. Some nights I remember leaving there with eight or nine hundred dollars in my pocket from one night's work. I did have my ways of pacifying unruly, impatient New Yorkers who might have wandered into the restaurant for a meal. I found it especially hard to juggle beverages and dishes for larger parties. It just wasn't my forte. As I would start to notice patrons at my table fuming and getting testy with me, I would lean into the table and say, I'm so sorry, I'm so slow. I just moved here from North Carolina, and I just can't move as fast as you all can. I would add a little lip quiver for dramatic effect. Suddenly, everyone at the table would relax and someone would say, Now don't you worry about a thing. You just take your time. We need to learn to take things slower like you do and enjoy life more. I would turn and walk away smiling to myself. There were certainly certain things related to food that I just didn't know about. I mean, I was raised where the only food I knew until I moved away from home was Southern-style cooking. That meant most vegetables cooked a minimum of four hours in fat back, among other things. The first time I ordered green beans in a restaurant in New York, they came out steamed, and I sent them back because I didn't think they were done. It was all I knew at the time. So it was only natural that it took me a while to become familiar with the various dishes on the menu in the restaurant. One particular dish was cold poached salmon with aspic. 
For all I knew, aspic could have been a hat that went on the fish's head. The first time I served it to a patron, I expertly placed the platter of salmon in front of her, and she looked at me quizzingly. Where is the aspic? I had to think quickly. We're out of it, madam. What? You're serving a dish and you're out of the condiment that goes with it? That's unacceptable. Where's the manager? Wait a minute. Let me go and check in the kitchen. I walked back to the serving window and there sat the aspic in a small bowl while I'd completely overlooked it. I grabbed it up and marched right over to her table. You're in luck. There's one serving of aspic left. The job could actually be fun at times because I did occasionally get to wait on celebrities and public figures like Caroline Kennedy. Once Eartha Kitt was at one of my tables with two guests of hers. She was a delight to wait on, but I was feeling particularly perturbed with the two cooks in the restaurant that day. They had been yelling at me in Korean every time I walked up to the window to pick up an order. I don't know what you're trying to tell me, so you're wasting your breath yelling at me like that, I would shout back every time as I walked away with an order. As Miss Kitt was finishing her meal and the check was brought to her table, she looked at me and said, What a marvelous chef. I'd like to take him home with me. Not even thinking about it, I shot back. I wish you would take him home with you. I wish you would take both of them home with you. They're about to worry me to death today. But be forewarned, all they will do is scream at you if they don't like what you're doing. I did eventually improve somewhat as a waiter and fell into somewhat of a groove there. Every now and then, I would have an altercation with the owner, Ken. Once he came up to me and got about two inches from my face and screamed, Bill, your stations are absolutely filthy. Clean them off now. I said, what are you yelling your head off? You're standing less than a foot from me, and I can hear every single word you say if you speak in a normal tone of voice. Exasperated, he responded, You know, Bill, you are too much of a gentleman to be working in a restaurant. I just shrugged and went off to clean my stations. Little did he know, there was one woman that came in there on a regular basis we called the fish lady, and I swear if you looked at her straight on, it was like looking at a goldfish in an aquarium. And almost nine out of ten times, she ended up at one of my tables. She only had one line that she repeated over and over. Young man, I like my rolls soft and my coffee hot. It never failed. I would take the coffee to her, and as soon as I would sit it down, she would take a sip and announce to the entire restaurant, This coffee is too cold. One day, I got so fed up with her, I took the coffee back to the kitchen and noticed a pot of boiling water on the stove. I got a fresh mug dropped it in the boiling water, and left it there about two minutes. I fished it out with tongs, slapped it into a tray, and filled it with coffee and raced it out to her. She quickly snatched it up from the table and suddenly dropped it with a blood-curdling scream and hot coffee splashed all over her fish face. This was the last time she ever complained about the coffee being too cold. I never regretted my move to New York. It was one of the best things I ever did with my young life. Coming from a little town like Greensboro, it blew the doors off my life and the hinges and threw the windows open to give me a real look of what marvelous and wonderful things there are out in the world to be experienced. And I came to love New Yorkers almost instantaneously. Having grown up in a dysfunctional Southern culture where yes can mean no and maybe can mean never and 99% of the behavior was passive aggressive and riddled with nuances of uncertainty. How refreshing it was to have people get up in my face and tell me the truth for a change. I absolutely loved that, and I still do. You always knew where you stood with someone. Along the way, I met a gentleman named Frank. 
He was a native New Yorker, and I doubt he had ever met a Southerner in his life. He and I went out a few times, but nothing really ever came of it. The last time we got together, he invited me to come to his brunch at his apartment. He asked me to pick up a few things at Zabar's to bring over. Smoked salmon, cream cheese, bagels, and locks. I was about to be introduced to something new. Frank, I'm happy to pick up these things on the way, but why I'm getting locks at Zabar's, you buy locks at a hardware store. I can't imagine that a gourmet food store would carry locks. He explained to Lil Abner what locks were, and that brunch was the last time we got together. I guess he figured I would eventually get back in my spaceship and fly back to wherever I came from. I didn't much care myself. At that brunch, he regaled me with a litany of issues he was trying to work through with his psychiatrist. I listened intently, we said our goodbyes, and as I rode down the elevator to myself, I thought, what a nutcase. Sometime between the time I left job waiting tables and began my first job in arts management, I called my mother, Hilda, and invited her to come up and spend a week with me. I was living in a sublet on West 86th Street and had plenty of room. Mama had never traveled anywhere by plane, and she was initially horrified. She had a litany of what-ifs during our conversation. My steady response was, Mama, this is probably the only chance you'll ever have to spend time in New York City. I don't know how long I'll live here, and if you ever want to see it, now is the time. I whetted her appetite with promises of Broadway shows, museums, restaurants, and tourist attractions. Finally, she gave in, and we set the dates, and she made her plane reservation. About a week before her flight, I received a letter from her, which I still have. In it, she repeated this line at least four times, at underlining dates and times and ending each sentence with an exclamation mark. You will be waiting for me at the gate at LaGuardia Airport at 11 a.m. when my flight arrives. I was there and chuckled to myself to see her heading toward me, clinging to a woman's arm who had been with her on the flight. Billy, this is so-and-so. She sat next to me on the plane and agreed to stay with me until I saw you. The week ended up being one of the most memorable times we ever had spent together. We saw two Broadway shows, one of which was Sugar Babies with Ann Miller and Mickey Rooney. I took her to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Frick Collection, and the Modern Museum of Art. We visited the World Trade Center, Empire State Building, and Grand Central Station. One night, we ventured down to Chinatown for dinner. I had planned a full schedule, and we did a lot of laughing. It was wonderful to see my mother marvel at the wonders of the city. One night, we went to Maxwell's Plum for dinner. Maxwell's Plum at 64th and 1st Ave was plush and flamboyant. Once we were seated and handed the menus, I told Mama I wanted her to try something new, and once she tried it, I would tell her what it was. I ordered an escargot appetizer. When the waiter placed it on the table, I told Mama to try one, and she did. Then I explained to her they were snails. With a pursed look on her face, she said, Well, at least I can say I tried it. I ate the rest. One of the things I made her do while she was visiting was to keep a daily journal of all things she did. She was religious about sitting down each night writing all these activities. After she passed in 2001, I found the handwritten journal with all of her trip souvenirs in her bureau drawer. What excellent memories they brought back. About two weeks after she returned to Greensboro, she was visiting her three sisters and read the journal to them. They got to the part about Maxwell's plum, and Billy ordered an appetizer called escargot and told me to try it. I ate one, and then he told me they were snails. My Aunt Laura, who was the sister closest to my mother, 
got a terrified look on her face and said, Do you mean to tell me you ate one of those nasty slugs you see crawling up a drain pipe? My mother attempted to explain, but I don't think they ever understood. After my mother left, spring turned to early summer, and I started thinking that it was time to get serious about a job that would move me into a profession in which I was interested. At one point in time, I thought I would be interested in playing the piano professionally, possibly as an accompanist for a singer. However, I started looking at the well-known artists who made a performance career. They had to sacrifice so much of their personal lives in travel, and for publicity purposes, and I simply wasn't interested in being that self-absorbed. I realized that New York City was a central location for many classical artist management agencies decided that pursuing a job at one of those agencies would be the next best step. I prepared my very thin resume and hit the streets. About two weeks into my search, I had a stroke of good luck. I walked into the offices of ICM Artists Limited off West 57th Street and presented my resume to the receptionist. She was gracious enough towards me and asked me to have a seat and wait. In about 10 minutes, the director of publicity came out and said, Mr. Bates, your timing is perfect. My assistant just gave his notice this morning, and I'd like to fill this position as quickly as possible. Please follow me to the office. Dumbfounded, I followed him. We entered his office, and he closed the door. He conducted a brief interview with me and then offered me the job. Of course, I grabbed it. I was to start in two weeks. My starting day rolled around, and I wanted to look my best that day. I wore my best off-white suit with a vest, which had a very fashionable wide bell bottoms and what must have been two-inch cuffs at the time, my favorite pop art tie, and a pair of black tie shoes with maroon stripes on either side that boasted stacked heels. At ICM, there was a large open space that was probably at least 40 feet in length, where all the assistants to the agents sat who had their own private offices. I was in the reception area, and my boss was at the other end of the open office space. I had been at work less than two hours when I was standing in my boss's office and I heard my phone ringing at the other end. Not wanting to miss the call, I immediately began running to my office, and about halfway through the office, my right shoe caught the inside big cuff of the left side of my pants. I sailed through the air at least 10 feet and landed on my face to gales of laughter throughout the place. I did weather this experience, though, and learned to love the arts management industry, and for the next 20 years plus, it became my professional life. One of the wonderful perks of working for an agency like ICM Artists was having access to prime tickets to exceptional performances. So it was something out of the ordinary when I attended my first concert at Lincoln Center with tickets provided by the agency. As I sat in the fourth row back from the front in the orchestra in Avery Fisher Hall and listened to soprano Dame Jo Sutherland, mezzo-soprano Marilyn Horn, and tenor Luciano Pavarotti in a glorious concert with the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, I became teary-eyed and felt the heart in my throat as I knew I had finally arrived. New York City was finally mine. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in finding out more about me, my writing, and additional stories for my collection, visit BillyBates.com. That's B-I-L-L-Y-B-A-I-T-E-S dot com.